0: Woody Guthrie, American folk musician and writer of This Land Is Your Land, was introduced to Huntington's disease at a young age. Though he didn't know it at the time, what was believed to be his mother's dementia was actually an entirely different illness. His mother would die in 1930 when he was just 18. At 19, Guthrie got married and had three children. In 1940, Guthrie divorced his wife and moved to New York to truly start his career as a musician. During the years, He would write many songs, including Bound for Glory and My Dusty Road, and would marry two more times and have a total of eight children. By the late 1940s, Guthrie's health was declining and his behaviour was becoming extremely erratic. In 1952, it was finally determined that he was suffering from Huntington's disease, a genetic disorder inherited from his mother. Believing him to be a danger to their children because of his behaviour, his second wife, Marjorie, suggested he return to California without her they eventually divorced. Increasingly unable to control his muscles, Guthrie was hospitalised at Greystone Park Psychiatric Hospital in Morris County, New Jersey, from 1956 to 61. During the 50s and 60s, a new generation of young people were inspired by folk singers such as Guthrie and a 19-year-old Bob Dylan would find Guthrie at Greystone Park Hospital and visit him several times. As his health further deteriorated, Guthrie would be moved to more psychiatric hospitals until he eventually died due to complications involving his disease in 1967 at age 55. His two daughters from his first marriage would also die from Huntington's disease, both aged 41 years old. Hello. there. Welcome to Genetic Drift, a podcast where we take a deep dive into the world of genetic diseases. I'm your co-host, Anthony.
1: And I'm Juliet.
0: So, what did you think of that story?
1: That was really sad.
0: Yeah, it's quite an unfortunate turn of events, really. Especially for someone as influential as he was. So, have you got any idea what we're going to be talking about today?
1: Well, I think you said in the story it's Huntington's disease.
0: Yep. Any idea what that is?
1: I have definitely seen it on an episode of House.
0: I swear everything's on House.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: Except for Lupus, apparently.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, one of the main characters in a couple seasons of House has Huntington's. And I know it's an illness that can kill very early, and that it is an inherited disease. But I don't have a great understanding of what it really is
0: well it doesn't necessarily affect people that early actually but uh what huntington's disease is like in a broad sense is a progressive brain disorder that causes uncontrolled movements emotional problems and loss of your ability to think
1: so kind of like dementia
0: yeah there's a reason why um particularly earlier on a lot of people were misdiagnosed as having dementia or you know other conditions that cause dementia as well but uh going back to going back to uh what you said about it being a an disease that affects you quite young it's debatable because the onset's between 30 and 50 years old so you could actually be quite old when you see symptoms for it
1: okay and old enough that you've you've had kids without knowing you've had the disease
0: yes Yes, which is going to be a big factor later on, okay, so going into the symptoms, uh Huntington's disease causes quite a few unsurprisingly, so the first kind of symptoms that you will typically see in Huntington's disease include difficulty concentrating, lapses in your memory, depression, stumbling, and clumsiness, and uh, mood swings such as irritability or aggressive behavior later on. Patients may develop other symptoms such as involuntary jerking or fidgeting movements of the limbs, difficulty speaking, uh, swallowing problems, so this is sometimes called dysphagia, and as a result of that you can end up choking on your food or you can get lots of lung infections from food going down the wrong way. You'll also progress towards increasingly slow and more rigid movement as Huntington disease develops, and you can be unfortunate and end up with personality changes, which, from our earlier story, you could see, was starting to happen to uh, Guthrie. Um, later on, you'll also experience breathing problems and difficulty moving around and Obviously, if you start having these breathing problems, that could eventually kill you depending on how severe it is, or it could just lead to respiratory infections that could kill you and In later stages of the disease, patients often need full-time nursing care.
1: Whoa, that was a lot there. So, can you just quickly walk me through well, why does it cause all these things? Kind of, what is it? So, you said it's a it's a neural disease.
0: Yes. So, in this regard, it's the 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 brain uh, is basically degenerating. So, obviously, the brain's responsible for all movement, ultimately all organ function, and your personality, your ability to think. So as the brain starts degenerating, your ability to do those different functions, so for you to think, for you to express your personality the way you've always done, or for you to be able to control your lungs or your heart, start to deteriorate.
1: Okay, so it's really progressive as well. Yes. How long does it take?
0: Well, typically, once symptoms start, it will take about 20 years after the first visible symptoms for someone to die as a result of Huntington's disease.
1: 20 years? Yes. That's a really long time to, for, for somebody to be just kind of slowly degenerating. That must be so hard on them and their families.
0: Yeah, this is an extremely rough condition for uh, a patient's loved ones. And obviously, I have no idea what it would be like for a patient to go through this. So there are a few ways to diagnose it. Um, The general approach people would prefer to do is to diagnose a fetus before it is born, so the parents can have the option of whether or not they want to keep or terminate the pregnancy. And the tests used here, I've mentioned before, chorionic villus sampling. So that's the little test where you take a small amount of the placenta and you check the DNA. And if you have the mutation that causes Huntington's disease, then you know that person's going to get it. Another thing that can be done uh, is that a lot of people who have Huntington's disease in their family are often offered genetic counselling. And in that situation, what might happen is that a family member who carries the mutation might undergo IVF treatment. And if that happens, then what doctors may do is test the fertilised egg before it's placed into the womb so that you only place fertilized eggs in the womb that don't have any of the mutation in it.
1: Okay, cool. So I know this is probably jumping ahead a little bit, but is it guaranteed that if you have Huntington's, you're passing it on to your child?
0: So when it comes to uh, passing it on, there no guar- there isn't a guarantee that if you have Huntington's, you'll pass it on, because as I'll go into more detail a bit later, it's a dominant uh, disorder. Which means that you only need one copy. If you have one parent with Huntington's disease, then there's about a fifty percent chance that you will get it from them.
1: It's a pretty decent chance.
0: Yeah, yeah, there's pretty high chances. And in general, besides the uh, pre-birth diagnoses, the only things that you can really do to diagnose it are observing the symptoms and making a diagnosis, taking a genetic, doing a genetic test, or using someone's family history as a basis for diagnosis.
1: I think what's really hitting me about this one is that if you know you have it you kind of know that your life expectancy is shortened.
0: Yeah it's a it's quite a morbid thing to face and obviously later on we'll go into what the treatments are and those are pro- what the future treatments are like but currently there is no cure for Huntington's disease Nothing? No, there's nothing. There are treatments available, but there's nothing that will cure the condition. And as far as treatments go, it's mostly just, it's based on dealing with the symptoms themselves. So you have antidepressants, particularly for those early stages when you're facing depression and mood problems. You can have medicines to ease the mood swings and irritability. So you'd be thinking things like drugs that you would give someone with bipolar disorder. You might be giving them to someone with Huntington's disease to control the mood swings that they face. You would also potentially give a patient medicines to reduce involuntary movement. So you'd be thinking the sort of drugs that he gives on with Parkinson's disease, potentially. There are some dietary approaches that can be taken. So a high calorie diet to prevent someone from losing weight. And this could be because of uh, that uh, difficulty swallowing means that someone may not be taking in as much food as they need to. And in more drastic situations, you might actually resort to a feeding tube. Which can either be a tube that goes through the tummy straight into the stomach to deliver food to someone, or it can be what's called an NG tube or a nasogastric tube, which is a tube that goes up your nose all the way down the back of your throat and all the way into your stomach to deliver food directly to the stomach. (laughs) Yeah, that one is nightmarish. It's an awful, it's an awful one to go through. And from personal experience, it's not something anyone ever wants to go through and it's not something anyone ever wants to put someone through. Other treatment that someone with Huntington's disease will often be offered, uh, especially in the UK, because of our NHS system and everything being included together, it's a lot easier to coordinate some of these treatments, but we, um, but physiotherapy is offered to help with the, particularly in the earlier stages, the balance and coordination problems to try and to, uh, to try and extend the period of time that a patient can be independent. Obviously, for later stages in particular, there's nursing care support, and there can also be uh, different systems to help with communication. And these can be as basic as picture charts, or they could be like an electronic speech device. So think of uh, what Stephen Hawking used to use to communicate with people.
1: Wow, so it really affects everything.
0: Yeah, yeah, this this can take everything from you basically. Depending on how it progresses, it can remove your independence quite quickly or more slowly, or you might be lucky enough to have a certain level of independence until you succumb to uh, either complications of the disorder or the disorder itself.
1: Wow, this one's just really dark, Ant.
0: <sighs> yeah, it's a, it's a heavy one, but at the same time, these really dark ones are worth informing people about because otherwise people just overlook them.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: With a lot of these, it's not like people go around and, you know, show that they have Huntington's or anything like that. So, you know, it'll be something that's part of a family's problem, but no one's really informed on what that involves or what that family might be going through, and therefore they're less able to help.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of people can probably relate a little bit to the horrors of this one, because it bears a lot of similarities to dementia.
0: Yes, I think particularly with the cognitive and the memory issues, a lot of people have a family member that has suffered in that sort of way. So there are some similarities that people can relate to, at least.
1: Yeah, so, so people can kind of get a glimpse into what it might be like for a family dealing with this?
0: Yeah, they can definitely see an aspect of it. It's, yeah, it's quite a depressing condition, but like, that's a fair fair way to describe it
1: so i'm really interested in how how is this caused you said the brain degenerates so Mm -hmm. what why is my brain just going to die
0: i I mean in a philosophical sense yes but
1: (laughs) (laughs) that was not an existential question
0: (laughs) it sounded pretty existential i couldn't help that But, so what Huntington's is, is it's uh, what's called an autosomal dominant disorder, which uh, do you remember which one that is?
1: Uh, It's caused by a gene that is not sex-linked and it's dominant, so you only need one copy of the gene passed on from your parent.
0: Exactly. Yeah! (laughs) We'll make a geneticist out of you eventually.
1: Oh no. That sounds like a lot of science.
0: Potentially. So the gene affected is called HTT. And thrilling
1: name as usual.
0: Yeah, it's an abbreviation for something um almost certainly the H stands for Huntington's, but the role of this gene is actually unknown. But it appears to be important for nerve cells in the brain. And the reason that we believe that is because The mutation in the gene is just this uh, change in the number of this sort of three base repeat. So in this gene, if you imagine that there's this long string of bases, so A, C, T, and G, there's a section within the gene where there's just this CAG, 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 multiple times. Okay. And in most of the population, this will be typically between 10 and 35 times.
1: That's just what the gene is made up of.
0: But if you have 36 or more of these repeats, then you will display symptoms of Huntington's disease. And interestingly, and this is something that makes it very important when you genetically screen someone, is that the more repeats you have of this CAG, the earlier Huntington's disease will affect the person.
1: Why would there be such a wide range in the number of times those bases are repeated? That seems like a lot of variation in one gene.
0: Well, so, well, it's actually a, a lack of variation, really. If you've got an entire section that's just repetitive and it's the same sequence, then nothing's changing that bit. It's just the same amino acid over and over and over again. But in this situation, what's probably happened is that it's not normally an issue and then eventually, you just get enough copies that it then starts to become a problem. But historically, because of because of how many repeats you can have without there being a problem, enough repeats have been able to build up over time. No,
1: but why why do you get some people with thirty six repeats compared to like twenty five? That's that's a big difference. How does somebody end up with more repeats?
0: The variety of sex. Okay. I realize that sounds like a joke, but I'm being very serious there. So sexual reproduction, one of its main purposes is to increase the amount of genetic variation over less generations. So it's how species like humans are able to adapt relatively quickly for how long we live. Okay. What that has done in this situation is that through sexual reproduction, you can end up creating gametes. So they're the sex cells. So sperm or egg. That will have additional repeats in that gene compared to what you had, because that section's so repetitive that when your cell's processes repeat the gene, it can make an error every now and then and just add an extra one or take away an extra one, so sometimes people over the next generation end up getting a longer re- section of repeats or a shorter section of repeats
1: so like if you're trying to type the same thing over and over again and you miscount how many times you're supposed to type it
0: out. Yeah, or it's like going through those tongue twisters repeatedly. Eventually, there's a good chance you'll make a mistake.
1: Okay, so at some point, you end up with an extra repeat of this bit of the gene. Yes. And that, we don't know what it really does, but it doesn't seem to cause anything major until you end up with a load of extra repeats.
0: Yes, and interestingly... Um, because uh, Because of this increase that can happen, people who have between 27 and 35 repeats of this sequence are actually at risk of passing on a mutation to someone without having one themselves.
1: So they don't have Huntington's, but the kid could? Yes. Because they had a lot of repeats, but not quite enough to have Huntington's.
0: And then they gained a couple... And that pushed it over the threshold. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. And uh, so what that mutation itself actually means, because I think that's probably an important thing to go back to now. Yeah,
1: yeah. What does it mean?
0: Now that we worked out what that mutation is and how the hell it's come across, what the mutation means is that your cells will produce an abnormally long protein. And this protein then gets cut into smaller fragments. And normally, if the fragments are the right length, then they can, they can potentially form with other proteins to make a structure that's useful for the cells. However, because the fragments are too long, these actually end up being toxic. And over time, as more and more of them are produced, they end up disrupting the function of the neuron and eventually, and can eventually kill the neuron. So the nerve cells.
1: Whoa, okay, we jumped to nerve cells there. What does
0: this protein do? No one knows, as what? I mentioned earlier. We don't know what it does, we just know that it's important in some way for nerve cells in the brain. Specifically the brain. Okay,
1: so, so we have a, a gene that makes this protein that we we don't know what it does, but we do know that if it goes wrong, we get Huntington's.
0: Yes. So, Science. So if it goes yeah. wrong, a protein that we have no idea how it works at the moment ends up being too long, it gets cut into pieces that can then damage those nerve cells, which can then kill them, which is why you then start having nerve cells die in the brain, which is how you get that degeneration of the brain.
1: So you have bits of protein that are just kind of piling up? Yeah. In, in the nerve? Yes. So, okay, I'm trying to think back to how nerves work. So that means that it's blocking the electric signal?
0: Potentially. Or it could just be stopping it from send, sending signals between other nerves. So it's either the electric signal or the chemical signal. But either way, it's stopping the nerve from sending messages.
1: OK. So I understand how that can cause movement issues. In my head, nerves control movement and feeling and such. So I can see how not. Having the nerve signals travel can stop you from like walking. How does it stop you from remembering
0: things? So because in Huntington's this dysfunctional protein affects the nerves in the brain, the nerves are responsible for all the signals and messages that are sent within the brain. So when those nerves die, then that section of the brain, becomes less functional it's less able to do its section so if it's the frontal cortex the bit right at the front of the brain kind of so if you were to look at between your eyes and then just go up slightly that area of the brain that's behind the skull there is responsible for a lot of your personality so if that bit becomes damaged your personality could change if a bit near the uh, back and the base of your um brain that kind of looks like a half peach which is known as the motor cortex gets damaged and it starts degrading then your ability to control your movements will also degrade
1: okay so when we say it causes the brain to degenerate it's not causing like brain cells to die
0: the nerves are the brain cells
1: oh okay that is a Piece of anatomy I did not understand.
0: Your your brain is basically nerve cells and fat. So think of it as electrical wiring and chips and pins and a computer and then the insulation.
1: Okay, so nerve cells dying equals brain cells dying equals your brain is degenerating and everything is terrible. Yeah. Okay.
0: And it's thankfully... Not a super common condition. However, Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah. However, it's most common in people of European descent.
1: How common?
0: So it ranges from between one in every 14,000 and one in every 33,000 people.
1: Okay. So fairly rare.
0: Yes. It's a lot rarer in people of Asian and African descent, though, with it being approximately one in a million people getting Huntington's disease in those populations.
1: Oh, wow. So another one that's really linked to uh, different different ethnic groups.
0: Yes, so it'll be something to do with uh, the differences in their history, and sadly... When I was looking at prevalence, one thing I did find is that 8% of cases will typically start before the age of 20 years old.
1: No, you said it was 50.
0: I said 30 to 50. So if you think about it, that's about 92% of cases compared to 8% of cases where it can happen in your late teens.
1: Oh my goodness. So if you had a parent with Huntington's and you know that you have it... You're going through life just waiting.
0: Yeah, if you know you have the mutation, there is an element of waiting for things to happen or trying to work out ways to delay the onset of it.
1: I really hope you're going to tell me good things in the future for this disease.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I think I've got... There are a couple of things that are at least hopeful. And um, just before mentioning that, though, I will... It seems fairly obvious, but you know, there are some conditions that are associated with Huntington's disease. One of them, unsurprisingly, is dementia, as we've kept going back to. And a lot of people can relate to that one, but Huntington's disease can cause dementia because the brain's cells are dying. Uh, other conditions it can cause are obsessive-compulsive disorder. Now, the reason for that is that if the nerves in the area of the brain that control your impulses start dying, you're less able to control those impulses. So that's why you'd expect something like obsessive compulsive disorder or potentially ADHD. And then also a more unfortunate one in some ways, psychosis.
1: What does psychosis actually mean?
0: So psychosis is the process of having hallucinations. So you either have Visual hallucinations, which are the ones that you always see on TV, they are the rarest, where people see things that aren't there and genuinely believe it's real. Like they, the, Their brain is unable to distinguish the hallucination from the real world. Auditory hallucinations, which is where you hear voices, for example, in your head or sounds. And then tactile hallucinations, which is when you feel sensations across you that aren't there. So you might feel like someone's touching you or something like that. Yeah, it's quite a creepy one. But um, so those are obviously some unfortunate ones, but uh, at least after this break, we will be going into the history and we will at least be able to feel a little optimistic with the future of this condition as well.
1: can only get better.
0: Very true. Right, we'll see you in a bit.
1: Is it history time
0: yeah it's history time
1: oh yeah okay so how long has huntington's been around
0: well reported cases of this or at least cases that we believe are huntington's disease can go back quite far actually so there are some mesopotamian and assyrian texts that refer to a condition that nowadays we believe is huntington's disease based on the symptoms so that's putting it back to, like, one to 2,000 years BC.
1: Oh, wow.
0: As actual written records.
1: Ooh, I love a good written text. So what do those texts say? Do you know?
0: Um, so let me check. So obviously I cannot read the parts that are in Akkadian or uh, Sumerian. However... There has been a very convenient translation. So one of the uh, translated sections says, If an affliction afflicts him while he is going along the road, and when it afflicts him, he makes his hands and feet writhe in contortion against the earth, his eyes are dark, his nostrils contracted, and he eats his garment, as it signs portends destruction of the house of his father. So there's an implication that maybe in that situation there's hereditary
1: Ooh, so we have a clear description of a condition that's causing some kind of uncontrolled movement, and we know that it's hereditary.
0: Yeah, and from that section, the interpretation that was made was that you had the mood changes, the eyes being dark, resembling a sort of manic depression, and obviously the controlled movements and the indication that it's not just him that's doomed at this point, but it's a family that's doomed.
1: Wow, that's really interesting. I'm sure there's going to be some debate around the interpretation of those texts.
0: Oh yeah, of course. But with all of these, that's why we we just say that um, that these texts indicate it, because we we obviously do not have access to the patients, and people back then did not have access to the same technology as us and didn't report things the same way as we do.
1: Well, but from these texts, we do think that Huntington's has been around in humans and been recorded from a couple millennia bc wow
0: so then when we actually go to uh tracing the mutation so when we get to the more sciencey, more provable side of things the mutation as a whole has not been traced so we don't know like when huntingdon's full stop originated however we have been able to date this disorder in certain populations So there was a study where grouped data of the disorder for people in Valencia was taken and using the different variations in the uh, genetic markers around the gene. So they look at the gene, they go, you've got the same mutation here. You have these markers around here, A, B and C. And depending on how they change from each other, we can say how separated you are. And from that, we can work out how many generations it was until you were all from the same person. In that situation, the group dated the disorder in this population of Valencia to between 4,700 and 10,000 years ago.
1: Wow. That's really cool when science and history meet.
0: Yeah, it's, it's quite a fun thing when uh, when it's done well.
1: Okay, so humans have been dealing with Huntington's for a, a decent while.
0: That's an understatement.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and. So I always like to ask, why has why has the disease survived? Why has it not been selected out?
0: So there's no clear advantage to having the mutation because it's a dominant one. Therefore, there's no kind of, oh, if you have one copy, you get an advantage. One copy gives you the illness. But what's likely the reason why it's still around is that process I set up with how the number of copies can increase over generations, so people can acquire Huntington's disease where they didn't previously have it. So healthy generations that were successful can, by poor luck, pass on the mutation for Huntington's disease, and through that process, it can still survive.
1: Okay. And also, I guess there's not as much of a pressure selecting against Huntington's if it doesn't manifest very early in life, because people will probably have children,
0: yeah, especially they... in, especially in earlier populations.
1: Yeah, and if they didn't know that they had a disease and didn't understand that it could be passed on, then there is no pressure selecting against
0: it. Yes, definitely. So, do you want to know kind of when it was characterized and how we you know got to grips with the illness?
1: Yeah, when did we figure this out?
0: So the first thorough description of this illness, because obviously you've seen some of these historical ones from Mesopotamia, but one where it's a thorough description where we can say, yes, it's this condition, we can distinguish it from all others without much ambiguity, was done by, unsurprisingly, George Huntington, because a lot of doctors have a habit of naming illnesses they discover after them, which I find kind of strange. But in 1872, he correctly described the disease and he described it as an autosomal dominant disease, which considering, you know, we hadn't actually, we hadn't worked out the structure of DNA at that point. We hadn't sequenced the genome or anything. This is quite impressive.
1: Yeah, decent effort.
0: So then jumping forward a little bit in time in 1993, there's this, uh, US Venezuela Huntington's disease collaborative research project which actually isolated the precise gene that was responsible for Huntington's disease, the HTT gene that I mentioned earlier. And around about that same time in 93, Anita Harding's research group found that the length of those repeats in the gene had an influence on how early the symptoms would manifest.
1: Oh, cool. So lots lots of repeats. Does that tend to show up earlier?
0: Yes yeah the longer the, the the longer that section in between, the earlier you'll get the illness, so I believe it was if you had more than forty repeats, you were likely to get symptoms by twenty or earlier,
1: but even with all that, we still don't actually understand what the gene does. No oh, that's so weird.
0: you got to remember that humans we've only sequenced the uh human genome in the two thousands. we have thirty thousand genes to get the hang of. And some genes have more than one function.
1: That's a lot of science that needs doing.
0: Yes. Yes, it does. Um, A lot of people wanted the Human Genome Project to be the be-all and end-all, like, oh, we now have the map and we know everything, when really it was just the start of a new era of research.
1: At least they'll keep you in a job for a while.
0: Fingers crossed. Otherwise I'm sure I'll find something to fall back on.
1: (laughs) Okay was depressing. <laughs> so, please give me some hope now. What is in the future for Huntington's disease treatments?
0: Well, so some very recent uh developments have happened which are very good to hear. In 2019, there was a phase 2 clinical trial that found uh, a new drug could safely reduce the amount of this toxic protein in the neurons. So you could start reducing the symptoms and slowing the progress of it so that people could live a better life.
1: Ooh, and how far through drug development is phase two?
0: There's only phase three and then it's uh, then it's market approval.
1: Ooh, okay, so they're getting close.
0: Yeah, you can hope that uh, realistically you've got between two and five years. If it works? Yeah. If it gets through phase three, which there's a reasonable chance if it's already gone through phase two, it's about a 50% chance that a drug will get through phase three. Then within five years, you could probably expect to see this drug on the market if it gets approved.
1: Ooh, that's so exciting.
0: There's also gene therapy. Oh, yeah. There's always some gene therapy. So the gene therapy, we're not as far forward. We're at the preclinical testing. So in this case, it's uh, it's not on animals it's on uh, neurons of taken from patients so they take a little sample and they and then they keep the cells alive on like some plates and then they test them with this treatment
1: whoa okay so what does the treatment actually do
0: so the virus delivers a gene that produces a huntington protein reducing molecule so they insert this gene that will make a different protein that basically gets rid of this toxic protein.
1: Okay, so not fixing the gene that's causing the problem, but adding something extra to try and go nom 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 up all of the toxic cut-up protein bits.
0: Yeah, and in those preclinical studies, it, they were actually able to reduce the production of the Huntington protein by 68%. Ooh. Which I think is really cool. There was also this is a strange one. So we're able to use an ancient worm to develop a type of RNA that can disrupt the protein production.
1: Okay, back up. Ancient worm.
0: Yeah. So there's a there's this type of worm called uh, Caenorhabditis elegans or C. elegans, and it's been it's it's been used in a lot of research. It's actually two Nobel prizes have been won researching this worm. But the important thing about it is that it has this little micro RNA sequence, so small bit of RNA that is identical to what we have in humans, despite a six hundred million year separation of evolution. What and it's allowed us to work out how to produce this sort of micro mRNA to disrupt the production of the Huntington protein.
1: Wow, thanks, Worm.
0: So that's a really cool one. There's also clinical trials that are currently in place to use stem cells to replace the neurons. So with stem cells, they can often divide either into a whole range of them or if you use fetal stem cells, they can can, uh, differentiate into any cell in the body. What you do is you get the stem cells, you put them into the brain and then they will differentiate and they will turn into nerve cells.
1: So that's kind of the going in and fixing the problem.
0: Well, we're just replacing the lost nerves.
1: Okay. So waiting for the nerves to die and then replacing them?
0: It's not necessarily waiting for them to die. It's just that with the patient, you'll just insert these stem cells and hopefully what they'll do is they'll make some functional nerves that will be able to take the place of the ones that have been dying and therefore you'll be able to delay the symptoms at the very least. Huh. So that's quite a cool one. I think another thing I didn't find any studies on it, but based on the fact that it's this long sequence of repeats that you want to try and remove, it's possible in future that we might be able to use CRISPR editing, which is sort of a genetic cut and paste. so what you could do is you could get this um CRISPR plasmid into so that's just a bit of DNA that has a certain function, into a virus, deliver it to the nerves, and then it would send the plasmid in. And then the plasmid would produce a protein that cuts off some of that repeat to make the section shorter.
1: Huh. But we also don't understand what that gene does.
0: Yes. So, <laughs> so but the, the, the real problems with that is one, you'd be getting a virus to infect the brain, which is obviously always a little bit funny. But as that's already showing promise in one form of treatment for Huntington's, that's not the worst issue. But with CRISPR, you can sometimes have off-target effects, so it can cut other locations. So it's all about making sure it's precise and making sure that it's precise repeated number of times, so that you don't just cut that bit, make it shorter, but then cause another mutation.
1: Okay, so more complicated than it looks. And so yes. I presume that's why the different approach of of instead of fixing the gene... The treatments are more about fixing the results and getting rid of the, the buildup of dead protein.
0: Some of it will be that. It'll also be because CRISPR is a newer process, so it's uh, we're still in the earlier stages of understanding it.
1: That's all really
0: cool. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's great. Like This one's actually as awful as Huntington's disease is. there is, There does seem to be some kind of light at the end of the tunnel.
1: So we always like to ask what can we do to destigmatize this condition for patients?
0: Well, I think one important thing to note and it's it's sad that I have to stress this, but in some societies it really does need to be stressed. If someone has the mutation, it's none of your business. Asymptomatic people have unfortunately faced discrimination when they've let people know that they have the Huntington disease mutation.
1: What do you mean?
0: So people will sometimes talk to them about uh their reproductive choices and, you know, like, will you abort your children or things like that. You know, some very, some very kind of off colour questions that are based off of curiosity, but just shouldn't be asked. Oh, God. Um, there have also been some uh pressures from insurance companies because... some of them have these uh, little caveats that if you have the Huntington's disease mutation, your premiums go up.
1: Oh, I hate health insurance.
0: So there have been groups putting pressure on these companies to stop them requesting genetic tests for people with a family history of uh, Huntington's disease. And this was reported in The Lancet because uh, companies in Canada have actually been requesting people with a family history to get a genetic test before they give them insurance.
1: Whoa. Not
0: cool. No, it's really messed up. And many people with a family history don't take the test as a result of these sort of things because of the fear of losing insurance or getting increased premiums. So a lot of people don't know if they're at risk of passing on the illness or if they might even have it, but will get it later.
1: What a mess. As if they needed more to deal with.
0: Yeah, so the the main one there is that uh, genetics should not be mixed in with business. Very simple, really, for avoiding any sort of prejudice or stigma with Huntington's disease. And with that note, uh, we'll just go to uh, some of the reading material. So where I got the uh, text from the Mesopotamian uh, tablets and the Assyrian text, was from a book called Diagnosis in Assyrian and Babylonian Medicine, Ancient Sources, Translations, and Modern Medical Analyses.
1: And shout out to our friend Helena for helping us make sure we were citing that source correctly.
0: Yes, thank you for that one. Uh, be honest, I don't understand this stuff at the best of times.
1: I'm the history person.
0: Yeah, yeah, there's a reason I don't do it. Another paper that's worth looking at is The Ancient Origin of the CAG Expansion Causing Huntington Disease in a Spanish Population by Garcia Panels et al. And that's the paper where they dated the mutation in a group of people from Valencia.
1: So as always, if you have any questions or comments about this episode or suggestions for future episodes, please get in touch with us at our Twitter at GeneticDrift1. Get in touch with us by email at geneticdriftpodcast at gmail.com or join our Facebook group.
0: Yes, and at the moment on Twitter, we've been sending a message out asking for anyone with uh, experience with Marfan syndrome and uh, a few other genetic conditions, if they could uh, potentially share their experience with us, because it's always good to uh, get an idea of what it's like living with the condition from people who had actually lived with it. This podcast's music, as always, is produced by William Kitchener Music, so please check that out. And otherwise, just say be nice to everyone you meet because you can't see the genes, so don't expect to see the illness. Goodbye. Bye.